Jeez. It'll blow my mind if we find him. I'd just about give up just then. This is season one of the Free Flow Podcast, a media project of Free Flow Institute. Chandra Brown, founder and director of Free Flow Institute. Welcome to the Free Flow Podcast, a show that takes today's best storytellers outside and into their favorite wild places for conversations about craft, conservation, and the creative life. This is part two of our conversation with award-winning outdoor journalist Hal Herring, host of the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers podcast and blast, and regular contributor to High Country News, Field and Stream, and many other publications. Our conversation took place in the Cab Hal's pickup truck in September 2020, parked on a section of forested public land west of Augusta, Montana. Hal's old dog, Bouray, had, for the first time ever, run off while he and producer Rick White were cutting firewood. Hal and his younger dog and Rick were waiting for Bure to return, and Hal was understandably anxious, and though he didn't show it, he had good reason to be concerned. You'll hear Hal read selections from his personal essay about the untimely death of another beloved Labrador named Bear. The essay, Seasons with Bear, was published in February of 2020 in Field and Stream. You can have stuff. It's cool country down there, man. That's the first time I really spent much time in the Bitterroot, even even in the front country of the Bitterroot. That's beautiful down there. Well, but, just some, yeah, for my part, um, my life in booms is not a place where you want kids. Yeah. Where your kids. The booms are not, they're, they're not healthy. And there's too much conflict. There's too much going on. If you're a roofer, roofing contractor, I get it. But if you're not in, enjoying the fruits of the boom... Then you're in, you're on the disadvantage end, yeah. and the kids in the schools and stuff like that. I know there's good schools in the Bitterroot, but you, there was a lot. It was a lot of of cultural clash when I was there, and um, I just loved it though. I was there for so long, and I I was it was in a time when I was really young, or fairly young, and I was uh, you could get in the mountains there quicker than anywhere in the state of Montana. I don't know what Idaho's like for that, but you can just be in the big rock climbing, trout fishing, tumbling rocks and alpine even quicker in the Bitterroot than where I've ever been. Yep. And if you got tired of the big rock and alpine, you'd go east and you go up to like the Welcome Creek Wilderness and the all of that stuff in those sapphires. Mm. Well, it's an, it's like a another planet entirely. Yep. And you can get up real high there, and it's like it is absolutely completely different than the main bitterroots. You know, it's it's great, but lots of people figured that out. Yeah, they have. This is a story I wrote for Field and Stream this past winter, I guess. Um, it's called Seasons with Bear. It's a dog story. Every hunter who has ever trained and loved a dog has a story. If that dog lives to be old and gray-faced, stove up from heroic efforts and mishaps afield, 
groaning on a bed by the wood stove, feet twitching in dreams of long-gone birds and battles and glory. That is one kind of story. If your dog dies violently, needlessly, at the height of his powers, the sunlit days of wind and prairie and swamp still unfolding and then cut short, that is another kind of story, indeed. The section's called Fall. In the early 1990s, with a carefully timed phone call at midnight, you could leave a message and be first in line to reserve a day on the Teller Wildlife Refuge, a five-mile piece of bottomland along the east bank of Montana's Bitterroot River. The Teller was thriving, a landscape conserved and more powerfully alive than ever, a patchwork of hayfields and other croplands, dense hedgerows of wild rose, chokecherry, and hawthorn rustling with pheasants dark water cattail marshes, and ether-clear spring creeks snaking through, all of it easing only slightly downhill to the big cottonwood forest that shelters the braids and oxbows of the Bitterroot River itself. My Labrador fair, he was 13 months old. I remember him that day as a cannonball brushbuster, 45 pounds, pure black, utterly fearless in the water. The Teller Refuge trip was Bear's first hunt, and the first for me with a retriever that I'd trained. By 9 a.m., we were limited out, each bird a perfect retrieve. I picked up the decoys, and we moved the ducks back to the truck, <clears throat> and we took the ducks back to the truck, then went out to walk the spring creeks, jumping a few Wilson snipe. Bear working close, flushing them. He'd never seen them before, and for the two I killed, he retrieved them with a little less fervor than he had the drakes. They are so tiny, and like morning doves, their feathers slip and stick to punk tongue and palate. I put them in my jacket pocket, and we walked to the river as the day warmed and gray clouds gathered. Autumn in the bitterroots, the smell of apples from the orchards on every wind. Big brown trout like bars of light bronze hovering over the sand and gravel in almost every little tributary of the river. I don't know about the population event, but I believe that the interest in people in water and outside being outside... I think it's a huge constituency for environmental progress in America. Sure. I've seen it firsthand. And then I've all, and now I've, I've and I've I've watched it erode really badly in the last 10 years. And as long as people don't lower their expectations and accept a river that doesn't have fish in it, then we're going to we're on we know how to fix it. I mean, I'm I'm pretty optimistic. A lot of people are saying now that I'm I'm saying the things that I want it to be versus the things the way they see it and um i'm i'm still holding on <laughs> to what it did i see it i think it's possible that we could have a huge amount of progress i agree with you uh on my good days it's you know, it's, you know. it's tough and i feel like this is a, a unique year for that of course election year and pandemic yep. year it's just twisting things but where yeah well the pandemic has driven people to socially distance the my buddy in Mississippi called me up. He had just bought a, a prop motor, 70, a 70-horse prop. And I've been looking for a 20-horse jet to, that I could afford, which I can't. And that's because there are none out there. The record boat sales, record kayak sales, I mean, those people are not going to want to paddle around in polluted water. And they're just like in the 60s and 70s when Americans started getting disposable income and cars and they went to Yellowstone and they came back to Mississippi and they said, I I don't know, it's Yellowstone's so beautiful. I don't know why we have to have that plant pouring all that stuff in the river up next to us when we could have it, we could have all catfishing here. 
and it was people getting out and seeing what was possible and that's what just happened that just that just happened and boy, did it suck for us who were already out there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure there were people can. everywhere, dude. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but but as I drove around looking for a place to camp, I was just like, man, these these people are these people are loving this. They're they have figured it out. It makes you want to hand out a pamphlet and be like, hey, this yep. is why you love this. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and the fire pit really isn't a garbage hole. <laughs> Like, like, believe it or not, it can't get hot enough to burn all those cans. <laughs> and the toilet paper doesn't have to be hung in the bushes. <laughs> this is a shovel. <laughs> this is how you use it. Yeah. But it was fun. It was, I, I have watched this, and the recreational economy is off the freaking graph. And those people are not going to want it to go back. They don't want to see the erosion. They're just now seeing, they're just now getting there. Yep. Um, so I, I'm optimistic. I, I don't, I believe like I went with Chandra down the Missouri river and they were saying you shouldn't even filter the Missouri because there's a lot of ag chemicals in it. Well, that's just unacceptable. I mean, that's just not like, like that's like, I'm not going to have that, like the Ganges or whatever. The, The India has some problems, you know, they need to fix them. We fixed ours and we need to really fix it we you can't have ag chemicals to make a river that you can't eat the fish out of there's that's unacceptable yeah and the pandemic showed us that too because everybody's like locavore meat you know meat supply what am i gonna do and the, and then the poor meat cutters in those jammed into those places dying of the COVID. i mean it was, it was like it, sh- it shined a light on a lot of stuff that people could probably fix right. how come those people had to put up with that mm-hmm. I mean, I mean the empowerment of labor, you know, in America. I just can't see the downside of that ever. You know, people who get together and demand higher wages and better working conditions and stuff like that. It's like, uh, we just we need more of that and not less. And that also that echoes out into a more just society where people can afford a pickup truck. And that means they get to buy it from a friend of mine who's selling it, and now he can pay off all his school loans or whatever i mean that's the way it works you don't having people more and more poor every year that's not a that's not a strategy Mm, no you know and and the pandemic i think showed it like you know where do you fall on the term failed state i think it's thrown around right now i think it's fatalism and i think it's people are too lazy they 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 if you think this is a failed state you ain't been traveling if you think this is a state that's got some real problems, you're correct. If you think it's a failed state, you you ain't traveled. I mean, that's just, that's fatalism. I know people down south who told me that the water was too polluted to swim in. And so the heat waves are even more uh, worse now because they can't go swimming. And I was like, dude, people are water skiing up and down the Tennessee River every day. I was like, I was like, they, and this, this was used to say there ain't nothing you can do about it. You just got to give up. That's just that's just all polluted. Everything's ruined. It's a failed state. That's crazy. And you're born, say, in the 1960s or 70s or 80s into this most prosperous democratic republic on earth, and now you're 30, 40, 50, and you're going, it's a failed state. I'm just going to watch TV. That's nuts. That is That is the laziest thing I've ever heard. If your local river is polluted... There are laws on the books to fix it. 
The dog is going to get that horse fly no matter what. Guaranteed. Winter. Back then, my wife and I were living on a mule ranch high on the east side of the valley in an old house with asbestos siding and bad plumbing. It had a collapsing wood stove that devoured lodgepole pines like a deity insatiable beyond any propitiation and that offered little heat in return. We took care of the mules in exchange for rent. Behind our home was another, more fallen house, occupied by a succession of squatters, adventurers, and families in transitions. It is hard to describe how much of that there was at that time in the Bitterroots. Americans on the move from California and Georgia and points between, restlessly looking for a frontier. One of those drifter families had come in with a litter of lad puppies, stayed in the house through December while they sold as many as they could, and then took the cash and disappeared. They left one pup behind in an old steel building on the ranch. I found him there, hidden behind some old buckets of hydraulic fluid. He'd rampaged the place, knocking over a full-size oxyacetylene rig, tearing up a blanket they'd left for him. His shyness, or more likely shock from being left alone, lasted only a few minutes before he began wiggling and leaping at my pack boots. My wife and I invited him to our house for Christmas. Mid-mornings that winter, Bear and I would walk across the place to an abandoned white barn. Shotgun in hand, I'd toss a rock onto the roof and listen as the pigeons startled from the rafters inside. I'd command Bear to heal and then to sit. Within a few seconds, the pigeons would start hurtling from the ventilation door above us. If my shooting was good, the birds would fall downhill into a coulee, and I'd release Bear for the retrieve. We did this several times a week. We were driven, intense, with few distractions. During his fourth and fifth months, we worked the pigeons, or we threw the dummy on the now thawed sloughs along the river, or we went into the mountains to flush blue grouse. College now, but well, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of people fired up, but it's just a, like how that's my, that's one of the things is like how do you, how do we engage people to be citizens again? In which, it, the, it, and I, I think they first they have to believe in the system. They do, they do, and the system for like um, for people, it has to serve people. It had to be legitimate. Anarchism is a, it, you can argue for anarchism when you have an illegitimate government, for sure. But if you have a representative government that will be activist in certain places like pulling pulling the stock market out of the fire and stopping enforcing laws on like predatory lending and stuff like that then i don't think anarchism is uh really legitimate because you you have a model that can be used to work for people if the people engage in it and that point is where i i stepped away from even kropotkin mm -hmm. And proud Han for sure. Um, I just stepped away because I was like, well, I don't know. You know, the United States in 1950, so it didn't work for minorities, but the mechanism was there for minorities. Cesar Chavez, Martin Luther King, these are just the people that we know about, Medgar Evers. The mechanisms were there for them to pick up like a toolbox and go to work to demand what was guaranteed to them in the Declaration of Independence. And the end of Jim Crow, you know, what? Like, 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 they did it. They did it. They fought it. You don't get it. You don't get it on a platter. That's Frederick Douglass. Without struggle, there is no progress. You don't get it because you're born in Des Moines. 
you know, but the toolbox that you have in the United States, I think it's unique. And you could open that toolbox and demand. And Chavez really did it in California. I, I watched an incredible documentary on Dolores Huerta, who is the woman power behind Chavez. And she never got that much credit because they're very patriarchal. They were a very patriarchal organization. But she was the power. And uh, they just freaking said, we're not picking the grapes. We won't. Very minimal. They wanted very minimal dignity. They wanted like a little bit more money. They wanted porta potties. They wanted a, a place to wash their hands because they were pesticides. And like, like they weren't. A, it wasn't like a Maoist insurrection. It was like what you and I would would expect on any job ever. And then they did it. Yeah. Um. And so I just don't. I don't buy into. I I've started out as an anarchist because I didn't want to be governed ever. But. As I got older, I was it meant, I meant that nobody else was governed ever either. That means no public lands, no clean water, no clean air. Because one person can be as anarchistic as they want, but they can't change some huge factory from dumping stuff on their land. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at the public lands issue. Yeah. Something's mobilized. You've been in the right at the heart of it, in the middle of it, with public lands. And it's it, it gives me the most hope of any issue that we have i can't think of anything else of like um civically we can quote unquote reach across the aisle with this one it's just a galvanizing topic it is it is i i think that we are far from done with it i mean the the cash cow part of it is just never going to go away and the privatization or state transfer to privatization um it's just too, there's too much money there for any for most of these guys to leave alone. I mean, and and I don't know how they develop this ideology that the feds aren't supposed to own any land or something. But like I just um, that's not true constitutionally. But they have like we all know that what's true is not making as much difference now as what it's supposed to. But I don't. I think it's going to take enormous citizen engagement to keep public lands. Mm. Um, what seems obvious sitting here cutting this firewood on the national forest is not obvious to people in Alabama, and they have great public lands. And I, I don't think that they've ever thought that they could be taken away, but they're not paying attention. Yep. I mean, Talladega National Forest, some of that Chihaw country is as pretty as anything in the world, you know, and it's not unnoticed by people who have, say, three or four billion dollars. And there's plenty of those people. There's more of those people than I ever could have imagined. Yep. Who are just simply able to buy 330,000 acres in Montana of austere Missouri Breaks land. Bam. Yeah. Um, west of our place... Uh, can't remember the price, but uh, 58,000 acres. One guy changed hands. I mean, that's a, I, that, that didn't, I don't think that was part of America at like when we were born. Mm -mm. I don't think it's, so. It's that, shifted dramatically. It's shifted dramatically. At a, a parabolic curve, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Summer. Bear lived with me in my timber thinning camps in the summer. And after perceiving the very real danger of a man with a raging Husqvarna 262 filling tree after tree, each falling willy-nilly and with lethal force, Bear would disappear into the forest while I worked. 
Whenever the saw shut down for refueling, he immediately appeared, tail wagging, tongue lolling. We'd play fetch or wrestle, share a drink of water or a bite of deer jerky, and I'd go back to work. In the evening, as we hiked back to camp along my cut line, I'd find his beds clawed out in the duff in the shade of spruce or piss fir as he followed me all day from a safe distance. Just once in your hunting life, if you have time, you should train a dog, become immersed in the psyche and soul of another animal for whom you are 100% responsible and whose senses and sense of the world are so beyond your own that every moment of every day is a process of revelation. Fall. It is difficult all these years later to recall just how free we were, that dog and I. Children were not yet born. Parents were still alive and well, and even the idea of paying for houses and acreage with steady jobs was as yet undreamed. September is the gold of a hunter's year in Montana, the opening of upland bird seasons for grouse and Hungarian partridge, with sometimes enough doves and snipe around to bury the bag even more. Elk and deer still weeks off, and pheasant, waterfowl, and antelope seasons don't open until October. There is a glorious freedom in simply chasing birds, and Bear and I took every advantage of it. Each trip to cut firewood in the Nash Bitterroot National Forest included a few hours of hunting blue or rough grouse. I headshot snowshoe hares, and Bear retrieved them with the same grace he did birds. We came home exhausted, loaded with firewood, bearing some of the finest meat on this earth, and we sat together on the porch to watch the sun fading over the mighty blue yawn of the Bitterroot Range. On weekends, we went east to hunt the prairies, lost for long hours in the coolies. The sharp tails, these ultimate natives, would burst from cover in heart-stopping flushes that ripped the fabric of that vast prairie silence. Often I'd shoot and miss, but I connected enough to keep my dog's faith in me strong and to keep him doing what he was more than any dog I have ever owned or even known since born for. At night, we'd make a camp somewhere on public land and Bear would sleep curled against my sleeping bag, comatose, only to wake me later with his windmilling legs, closed mouth barks and whines, muscles tensing and untensing as he hunted endlessly in the country of dreams. Where does a creative life fit into that right now? Where does somebody who's lit up about climate change or public lands or or just has a, you know, a desire to write, has that itch that we got born with or whatever, you know? Yeah. And they're and they're walking out of undergrad or grad school. They're in their thirties and they're they're staring down the barrel of the next thirty years, thinking about thinking about that. And where do they where do they fit in this? Where they've always fit or how? Like what what would you advise? Are they a, are, like this? are the, is the hypothetical person an activist, uh, advocacy person, or mm. a creative? That's a good question. If they're all three, I know where I know the answer is. You can start a multimedia deal like you're you're doing, and you start uh, you you train yourself in the communication arts and trades and craft, and then you follow that activist passion with that whatever it's whatever it is, and um and you learn a little humility and how to do a measured argument. To, that will reach people that don't share your passion or don't know they do. 
So that one's one, and there is such a thing as grant money and organizations that do stuff like that, and you you can find your way in that. Um, it's a hustle bustle, you know, feast or famine, not much feast. Uh, but you could do it. Now, for a simple creative, I think you're going to have to have another trade at this point. And I would recommend that to people. Like like we were talking about our friend Drew, who's a filmmaker. But he's, he's a camera guy. Mm -hmm. And he has a great trade. And it's both art and trade. Um, I think you're going to have to have a trade for now. Until things change. Like with, with intellectual property on the internet. And I think it's a very difficult time. You're not going to be a short story writer and have a house just writing short stories for magazines. Because it, it, you can't, I've done it before, you can't think clearly when you have no money at all and don't know what the rent's coming from. You may be the wildest artist on earth and you may draw, paint the most beautiful picture that month before you're evicted, but mostly not. You just get evicted. And mostly on that morning when you've eaten that last deer steak and those last three fried potatoes on your plate and you go like, wow, I don't have any more food. It's very difficult to think of like the plot for your short story or the pilot that you want to work on or the poem. It's just not true that hunger, that real hunger makes people more creative. That's not true. <laughs> One of the great myths. Yeah. Some hunger. I mean, I, I doubt seriously that I would have written all I had to write. I've written if I didn't need a paycheck. Um, and so some hunger, yes. Well, that's but, like being out in the woods, right? Pure, desperate hunger doesn't kill an elk. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. But no. some some suffering out there in the woods. Being you, willing to you suffer. Better be, you, you better get into it, you know, and yep. you're not going to kill an elk either if you're not yep. willing to get into it a little bit. That's right. But you better take some preparations. You got to have food. <laughs> you got to have some shelter you know. because you're not. And, like, that's the, the, the thing behind all that expensive gear is you can actually stay out in a storm now. And then get and you get an elk. You suffer. It's not going to be pleasant, but you're, you, you're safe and you can get an elk. So yeah, some suffering is the willingness to uh, to embrace some suffering is is definitely real. Yep. And also like to have people tell you that you ain't worth a shit, and you still get up and go do it, and say, man, this is I'm gonna make this work. You know, it ain't for everybody, and that's why everybody doesn't do it. And it's and the more you do it, the less you have a big head about it. I'll tell you that. Like that's a, the most successful people I know in journalism and stuff like that. They're not particularly egotistic. Got to have some ego to do it. But the the sheer number of failures I think that people endure in any given life like that tends to work against egotism. I would definitely say that. Just a matter of how you retain your spirit for it. You yeah. Know? And, and, and you practice. need something. You need something that ain't. It's a little bit more than the common. But how many people do you know who are, are artists who are so sensitive and stuff that they they just barely make it? I've known them. It's hard. It's hard to be just sensitive enough to create something beautiful, and not have the the harshness of the world, you know, break you down. 
I mean, I think that's a that's definitely a there's a weird balance. Nobody's ever going to strike that one. We used to say as a freelancer, this is this was a, a lot of people. Ted Carasotti actually taught me this, and he was a very successful freelancer back in the old days. He said, "I'll tell you what, you can be as successful, as successful as you want, but it don't come when you need it." And he said, "There is some weird way in the world, a perversity in the world." That when you're the most broke and the most hungry and need an assignment, you will get the most indifference. And when you have, like, your calendar is full, then people call you and write you and ask you to do these very, really good stuff. And he said, but the truth of it is, is you never get it when you really need it. There is a weird thing about desperation in that freelance life. And it, it, they don't know you're desperate. They're not thinking about you. Remember, I think I told you this. I was like, I was like, I think those people are snake bit on me. They hate me or whatever. And a friend of mine who's also a freelancer goes, they, they don't even think about you. <laughs> That's like he said, they don't hate you. There's nobody in there talking about let's let's do Hal Herring in. They haven't thought about you in weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true, you know. And that's a thing you got to get over too. Yeah, that's, you know. That's for us life, mm-hmm. you know. I was like, yeah, they don't. They're not thinking about you. <laughs> and then you just have to deliver the goods consistently, and then you get work. And that's how you do it. Yeah. Spring. In 1992, the Bitterroot Valley was changing all around us. The beginning of the land development boom that would transmogrify the valley during our years there. Our house was at the end of the road. But an older gentleman, a retired excavator, had bought a small piece of land behind us and was planning to build his home there. Every morning, he drove slowly by our house, pulling a trailer with a backhoe on it. In the bed of his truck rode his Airedale, tall and proud. They were inseparable. One cold day in March, I let Bear out while I put on my boots. We were going to go up Butterfly Creek in the Sapphires, get up to the snow line, and just see what we could find. I looked out the window and saw the excavator's truck and trailer with the backhoe parked on the road in front of our house. The man, wearing a faded Carhartt jacket, was standing in our gate. I came out the front door. I ran over your dog, he said. I looked at him and looked around. No, I said, not my dog. He's right around here somewhere. I just now let him out. No, the man said. He had tears in his eyes. It is your dog. I know him. I ran over him. Out on the road, Bear lay on his side, not just dead, but absent. He had run out on the road, something that he'd never done before, and been barking at the Airedale. He'd gotten between the truck and the trailer, and the trailer with the backhoe had run clean over him. What can I do, the man asked. How can I help you? I said there was nothing to be done. The man must have thought that I was crazy or the coldest person he'd ever met. The truth was I had no capacity to understand what was happening. I picked Bear up by the scruff of his neck and he hung limply from my hand. I walked over to our fence and threw him over it into the yard. I don't hold it against you, I said, but I have to go now. The other thing was never, like, never wait on the check to start another story. As soon as one's turned in, you take two days off and then you start the next one. Otherwise, the lag time between those checks will, will completely can you. You know. Yeah. I mean, that, 
that's a universal from anybody who's ever succeeded in a in an artistic career. Yep. And just you don't you don't wait on it. Nope. Did you to the to that point of being like you know just just create just sensitive enough to create and get by and but also like resilient enough to just keep at it. Yeah. The toughness. Did you did you face questions of that from siblings or parents or anything? Did you ever feel like like man, why don't how why don't you just get I mean you're talented, why don't you just get stop the writing thing? I think they knew I wouldn't. Yeah, and uh, I have a pretty open-minded family on that stuff. And so um I think they knew I wouldn't and that um Anything else I did, I wouldn't be as happy at. And also, I, I, you know, I got a problem with it. It's like I was able to do timber thinning, and, and I mean, I tried log peeling and stuff like that. But um, I don't know that I could get up at 645 and go to a job that didn't somehow emotionally inspire me and main, keep that up. That might be very dangerous for me. And I don't think that's a strength. I think that's a weakness. That's the place where I'm talking about balancing that sensitivity with resilience. Um, I'm not sure I have that kind of resilience of those people who can really, like, I've got to do this to feed my family and put my daughter to college and my son to college. Um, I'm not sure I have that. And so that might be very perilous. And I think my family probably, you know, they're more clear-sighted on you they might have been very aware that I was not cut out for that. But I don't, I'm, again, I, I admire the guy who can go, or the woman who can go to a job that they don't like and do it adequately and and feed the family or pay off the car or whatever. Yeah, it is not. I don't believe in that, that quiet desperation stuff of Thoreau. I'm, I think that's a little overplayed because sure. I, I I think that people who can do that have a they got some discipline they got power. It that follow your bliss and all that stuff. I mean that's true that's good stuff. But it uh it's also powerful to do what you have to do, and or be able to, you know. Well, yeah. I mean you're selling yourself short and not by by saying that you haven't had to face adversity and do that you've you've clearly like endured some some of those lean times you do for sure for sure but i didn't get a job like um say selling insurance or sure. something that i didn't i didn't want to do and that's an and people close to me will point that out you know it's like you don't you hadn't done that much stuff you don't want to do you might have done things that were hard in order to do what you want to do but i'm i'm i take that criticism to very seriously um, especially from people who maybe not had the chance to take a risk. Um, I'm sounding more big-hearted than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't think you get to fake that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's um, if you're unemployable, and so you do, you become a writer. You're otherwise unemployable. You know, I'm not. Well, maybe that's not a choice either. Right? You just have. You got to do what you can do. Um. That's a, that's another uh, interesting. And I bet Cormac McCarthy. I can't imagine Cormac McCarthy selling stocks or <laughs> shoes. What do you think of Melville uh, working in the customs house? Oh yeah, 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 totally. I'm thinking who was the um, 
Was it Wallace Stevens that was the big insurance agent? Yeah. 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 That's how he funded his poetry. And right. uh, William Carlos Williams was the doctor. Yep. Yeah. They knew, they understood poetry from the get go. Yeah. You're not going to ever make it. Yeah. And those right. Are, those are landmark poets. Right. And for good poets that I've, I've known personally, they were, that was liberating. Yeah. That you're never going to make it does that. So. They just accept it right. from the get go. Right. You know, it's just not, the market's never going to come, come around for it. So they just, it's just not some a consideration they ever have to have. Right. What is it Ezra Pound said? He said, uh, poetry is news that stays news. You know, and Blood Meridian or, um, I'm, I love Larry Brown's work. Yeah. You know, Joe. And that book, Joe, was closer to the reality that I understood tree planting in Alabama and Mississippi than anything I could have ever written as a nonfiction writer or journalist. It was the person you pass driving home from work in that pickup truck and wave at on that back road, and it was his story. And journalism can't do that. It could not do what was in that book. Um, and it had to be Larry Brown to do it, too. Yeah. And, uh... Yeah, that and man, I guess maybe that's that's where I'm at in my in my own development. I feel like I'm I I put in a lot of sweat, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of time, drug my friends and family through the ringer of it. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> so I'm 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 notching those battle scars. Yeah, and I'm and I'm understanding. You know, I've had great mentors and great training. I guess I'm trying to find out that like that story that only Hal Herring can write that only Larry Brown can write you know yep, and yep. how to how to like circle in on that yeah rather than listening to the voice of like what's what's somebody gonna publish what's somebody gonna what's gonna right. you know right I hear you do you know have you do you know his history though where he uh, wrote no so watch this um find this documentary called The Rough South of um it was a guy, I think his name is Peter Hawkins, that made it. But it's an interview with Larry Brown. And it's a documentary about him. But he he wrote hundreds and hundreds of stories. And he started out and he just tried to write these, like, murder mysteries. And it was just, like, absolutely not him the way he ended up at all. He couldn't give up. At one point he got to a point where he said, I spent too much time. What, what am I going to quit now? You know, Barry Hanna, you know his work. Yep. And Barry Hanna, it, he saw him, and he, he was always trying to get Barry Hanna to teach him something. And Barry Hanna, at first, would like he would, like, see him coming and run. <laughs> and then later, they got to be friends, but no, but it was, it, Barry Hanna said, I didn't know what this guy wanted. He, you know, he was, he, he, I think he had been in the Marines, but he was completely uneducated in a formal sense. And he said, you got to read, you got to watch it. He says, anybody who read, read my work at that time would have to say, there is no hope for this person. No hope. He should do anything but this. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, so, and, and he ended up like Faye and, and Joe are two great books. And there were other, I mean, his short stories are facing the music and big bad love are great. But it took him forever, and he died when he was 53. 
that's gonna be that's gonna be me and you one day, Hal. I'm gonna you're gonna see my truck coming up into Augusta. You're gonna be Barry Hanna. You're gonna split. Yeah, gonna, here he comes. He's <laughs> got another manuscript. <laughs> He's totally manuscript. Get him out of here. We're gonna have to move back to the Bitterroot. Yeah. <laughs> I went back into the silent house. My wife was at work in a plant nursery a few miles away. There were no cell phones then. There was nothing to say anyway. I'd messed up, gotten our dog killed. There was the dog bed my parents had bought Bear for Christmas. There were his toys, his training dummy, a cloth duck that he carried around, a rubber Kong ball. There was his food dish and his water bowl. For three years and three months, we had not been separated for more than a couple of weeks. I had started bird and waterfowl hunting with Bear. I had no idea what I would do without him. I can't remember the rest of that day. I don't remember my wife coming home or telling her what happened or what we said. She was as close to Bear as I was. It was cold. There was no hurry to bury him. I sat out in the late afternoon with his body. The days are so much longer in March. The daylight lingering, the winter so clearly over. A grim, almost unbearable contrast between the awakening earth, the light, and the inert black hide beside me. And I drank a pint of cheap whiskey, and for the first time I cried. My wife and I buried Bear the next morning at daybreak on an island in the Bitterroot River. We left a sharp tail wing to mark the spot, and we went home to that silent house. There were wonders still to come for us, a son and daughter, a small farm, new adventures, lives unfolding, expanding, other dogs and other hunts. But there was never a time like that one, never another dog like Bear, it was never that much freedom. Life goes on, they say, what they do not say what is perhaps best left unsaid is that so much of the best of it will only happen once. What I learned was to pay attention, look around, feel this, love this, believe this. It is this way, and it will never be this way again. Thanks to Hal Herring for being such a good friend to Free Flow and for being so generous with his time. When he and Rick finally got back to his house, they were greeted at the back door by a wagging tail. Hal's old dog had been picked up on the road by some hunters who figured the dog was lost. So thanks, as always, to Nate Hedgie and Wartime Blues for our theme music, to the Montana Arts Council, to the Prop Foundation for your support. If you like the Free Flow podcast, or if you want to check out Hal's podcast and Blast, subscribe to both on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find links to the pieces you heard Hal read today, please visit his website at halherring.com. And for information on Free Flow Institute programming, or for links to the things we talked about today, check out the show notes at freeflowinstitute.com slash podcast. <laughs>